The TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member. And we don't mean your Aunt Dolores. You stink! The TNT Shop has it all at tntradio.live. You're with Basil Valentine and Compass on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Today is Tuesday the 14th of November, and welcome to Compass with me, Basil Valentine, the voice of sanity. This is your World News Hour here on TNT. In today's special programme, I'll be joined by journalist and activist Benjamin Rubenstein for a deep dive into all aspects of the crisis in the Middle East, which is starting to change the global political map. Also today, thousands of people are dying mysteriously of cardiac arrest. We have a report from the UK and the impending humanitarian crisis in Somalia, which has displaced thousands of people. But first, the other stories making the headlines as we go around the compass. The White House has said Joe Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping will discuss strengthening communication and managing competition when they meet on the sidelines of the Asia-Pacific Cooperation Summit this week. The face-to-face meeting in San Francisco Bay Area on Wednesday will be the first between Biden and Xi in a year, with the high-stakes diplomacy aimed at curbing tensions between the two superpowers. White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan told reporters Biden believes there is no substitute for face-to-face diplomacy to manage the complex relationship. We anticipate that the leaders will discuss some of the most fundamental elements of the USPRC bilateral relationship, including the continued importance of strengthening open lines of communication and managing competition responsibly so that it does not veer into conflict, said Sullivan, referring to the People's Republic of China. The way we achieve that is through intense diplomacy, he said. That's how we clear up misconceptions and avoid surprises. Sullivan also said that Biden would go into the summit on a solid footing, having positioned the United States to be able to compete effectively at home and abroad and with the strongest recovery and lowest inflation of any leading economy. He said Washington is looking for specific outcomes from the meeting and hope to see progress in re-establishing military-to-military ties with China and in combating the trade in fentanyl that has become a scourge in the United States. China cut off military-to-military communications with the United States last year after a visit to Taiwan, a democratically governed island China claims as its own, by the then House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Tense relations soured further when the United States shot down the spy balloon in February. Sullivan said communication between the militaries is the way to ensure competition did not veer into conflict and that China had been constructive on the issue in the dialogues leading up to the summit. Almost a month after the election that defeated the Law and Justice Party, Poland's parliament held its inaugural session and voted in a new leadership, showing that power has decisively shifted away from the former ruling party. The parliament now has a new speaker, former television host Szymon Holownia, who was elected with the support of 265 deputies, while the PIS candidate, Elisabetta Witek, received only 193 votes in the 460-member parliament. 
in his first speech as Speaker, a powerful position which directs the work of the Parliament, Holovnia promised a decisive break with the practices of law and justice who were in power since 2015. Details now in this report from DW News. For the first time since last month's general election, an alliance of opposition parties led by former Prime Minister Donald Tusk has signed a coalition agreement, but despite having the majority of seats, they'll have to wait to take power. First, the conservative nationalist Law and Justice, which won the most seats as a single party, will get its shot at forming a new government. That's despite outgoing Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki appearing to have no path forward. Poland's rival blocs both had something to celebrate as election night seemed to produce two winners. The governing conservatives again emerged as the biggest party. But an alliance of three opposition parties won a clear majority of seats in the new parliament. Poland's president Andrzej Duda, who as head of state gets to nominate the first candidate for prime minister, held consultations with both sides. After the talks, President Duda, a conservative and ally of the Law and Justice Party, announced he would follow the established protocol. Following a calm analysis and consultations, I have decided to give Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki the mission of forming a government. In doing so, I'm sticking to the good parliamentary tradition, whereby the winning party is the first one that gets the chance to form a government. The acting Prime Minister will have four weeks to forge a coalition and win a confidence vote. Of course we did not win these elections on our own. It's absolutely clear that the message from the voters was, yes, your program is the one that won, but you have to reach an agreement with others. So, we'll try to reach an agreement with other parties. At a rally, opposition leader Donald Tusk criticized the move, saying it is merely delaying the inevitable. The president knows perfectly well it might still be possible to play for time, but it's a waste of time for Poland. The conservatives might still try to steal something during this time, but we will be watching very carefully. Tusk is widely expected to be elected prime minister once lawmakers are able to put forward their preferred candidate. That means the next government might not be in power in Warsaw until mid-December, time that the opposition says Poland cannot afford to waste. Monica Szeratska is our correspondent. So is this just a waiting game for this opposition alliance? Uh, yes, it looks like uh, waiting games and uh, play, uh, playing with time uh, for time uh, from the side of the president. Uh, because the government, uh, the current government, uh, Law and Justice Party, uh, they have no, uh, they have a clear minority in the parliament now, so they are not able to uh, form the government. But, but still, uh, they uh, try to convince the public that they are uh, building this government. So, uh, what they are trying to do is to, co to convince some opposition politicians to uh, switch to their side. Uh, if they don't succeed, uh, of course the the vote of confidence in a couple of weeks uh, will be a huge disaster for the party. Uh, this scenario is very possible. Argentina's main political force for decades, the ruling Peronists, only months ago looked down and out. 
Voters seem ready to abandon them as inflation soared to over 100%. The peso currency plunged and poverty spread. But now the movement, which dates back to the 1940s when it was founded by former President Juan Perón and his wife Evita, looks like it may yet again rise phoenix-like from the ashes of crisis. It has a new frontman, Sergio Massa, who is in a tight race to win Sunday's presidential election runoff with anti-establishment outsider Javier Millet. But in order to secure that win, the Peronist movement is being forced to reinvent itself, with a shift towards the centre from the leftist bloc of divisive ex-president Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner. Kirchner, a close ally of regional socialists from Bolivia to Cuba, handpicked current president and Alberto Fernandez four years ago and ran as his vice president, although the two have since clashed as both have seen their popularity decline. Economy Minister Massa, a wheeler dealer with connections across the political divide, is meanwhile pledging a unity government and has looked to win over moderates and conservatives. If Massa wins, he will build a different leadership. There will be disagreements, but he will maintain the unity of the coalition, said Argentine Foreign Minister Santiago Cafiero, a Fernandez ally, speaking to Reuters. Sergio's strength was to get the politics in order. For a unity list, he was the best candidate, because he's not from any signed side and he resolved internal tensions. Massa, aged 51, is a lawyer with a wide network of business, union and diplomatic contacts and has looked to distance himself from both Fernandez and Kirchner during the campaign. He is saying he is offering change from within, although he has regularly dipped into the familiar Peronist playbook of tax cuts and attack dog politics. His rival, Javier Millet, is a right-wing radical who has ridden a wave of voter anger at the country's economic crisis. He often tries to tag Massa as Kirchenista, though a new term, Massissimo, has grown up around him. Kirchner, who ran the country from 2007 to 2015, remains popular with a significant hardcore base, but has taken a back seat in the election build-up and is under the cloud of a corruption sentence handed down last year. Since its founding, the Peronist movement has been nebulous and changing. While it leans to the left, it has included ideologies from the right also. Its defining feature is a focus on social justice. Everywhere has a right and a left, but in Argentina there is Peronism, said Julia Sagini, a 32-year-old actress speaking from Buenos Aires. She defined Peronism as a movement giving rights to those who did not have them. This ability to be all things to all people has helped Peronism survive over many decades, but it has also created internal tensions and power struggles, the latest being that between the left and the centre. The left wing had backed a presidential candidate allied to Kirchner, but eventually lost out to Massa, who favours close ties with the United States and more fiscal discipline. We'll have a report on the outcome of the Argentina election next week.
Liberians are voting in a presidential runoff after the two leading candidates were separated by just 7,000 votes in the first month round a month ago. Voters are choosing between incumbent and one-time AC Milan football star George Weyer and former Vice President Joseph Boakai. President narrowly won the first round but failed to get the 50% of the vote required, triggering a runoff. Voting in October was fraught with allegations of fraud and violence. The Election Commission said that nine of its temporary staff had been arrested over alleged ballot tampering. More now in this report. Monrovia's intellectual centre is home to lively street debates. Politicians, academics and ordinary Liberians come here to argue their positions on governance, the economy and social issues. It's a place, Emmanuel Azango says, why people vent their frustrations without having to resort to violence. He says the country is on the wrong track. The fundamental issue here is security is very paramount. You got bread and butter issues. Many Liberians we spoke to say they are worried about violent confrontations in the coming weeks and months. One of the main challenges facing the president is healing the division among Liberians. The campaign season has been particularly heated and violent. This has prompted fears of conflict in a country that has yet to fully recover from a civil war that killed about a quarter of a million people. Analysts say reforms and fundamental changes are needed to tackle the numerous problems. First is to stabilize the government, uh, rebuild the governing institutions, reorganize them, and uh, give them the capacity that they need to deliver services. President George Weir's first term was characterized by protests against the rising cost of living and allegations of corruption and mismanagement. Many Liberians say those mustn't be allowed to happen under the next administration. Ahmed Idris, Al Jazeera, Monrovia. We're going to take a short break now. When we come back, thousands of young people are dying of cardiac arrest. What could possibly be causing it? We'll be right back after this short break. You should hear what Charlie Robinson is talking about. I think once we saw the supply chain issues uh, that happened during the COVID debacle, you go, well, that seems bad for the, you know, when you're fighting somebody for toilet paper, but it could be worse, right? It could be the last can of food. So people are starting to reevaluate and reassess their situations and their relationship with supply chains and the like. And I think what that does is it leads you to a place of saying, how can I make myself less dependent on the system? It's kind of hard to know where to start, right? Where would you suggest we even begin with this process? Yeah, it's funny you said that because someone said to me recently and it made me laugh that this is going to be the kind of collapse where the Burger King's still open. And I think that's what's probably lulling people into a false sense of security in that everything when we go to the city kind of appears normal unless you're in one of those really crazy drug adult cities. But for most people, I would say, Charlie, it feels normal, but it ain't normal. <laughs> the world yeah. is not normal. It's completely gone off Charlie Robinson on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. The Light is Britain's far-right conspiracy theory paper spreading hate and vicious lies. No, that's what the BBC say. The Light is the only national newspaper bringing you the real news and informed opinion on what's really going on today. You can subscribe, order copies, submit articles and read back issues on our website. 
thelightpaper.co.uk and see for yourself why the establishment are so worried about the uncensored truth getting out to people every month. They've launched a new service called Wake Up Your Neighbours, where you can get copies delivered to the streets right around you if you don't want to do it yourself. The Light Paper. Not for right, just right so far. thelightpaper.co.uk You're with Basil Valentine and Compass on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Six prominent presidential candidates in Madagascar told AFP on Monday that they plan to boycott this week's elections, worsening a political crisis engulfing the country. The six, who are part of a larger grouping of opposition candidates holding almost daily protests for weeks, said they will not take part in Thursday's vote and will urge their supporters not to cast their ballots. We will call on people not to go and vote, said presidential hopeful Mark Ravalomanana, 73, one of two former presidents to join the call for a boycott. The Indian island nation has been shaken by a fierce battle between President Andri Rajoelina, who is running for re-election, and most opposition leaders. Details now in this report from France 24. Head of Madagascar's uh, lower house of parliament has called for uh, next week's presidential elections to be suspended. This following weeks of opposition rallies. Uh, speaking in Antanarivo, uh, Christine Razanamahasoa said that the situation in the country doesn't allow for a free and credible election currently. Those elections are, of course, uh, set to be held on the 16th. Uh, Madagascar's laws, uh, laws rather, do not provide for the suspension of a vote, and any such decision would require a government approval. Have a listen. We will move forward in stages to achieve objectives. In particular, the achievement of a fair presidential election accepted by all. Also in Africa, floods caused by torrential rainfall have killed at least 31 people in Somalia. Various parts of the East African country, including Hiran State in the center and Gerda region in the south, have been affected. Since October, floods have displaced nearly half a million people. Water has also caused extensive damage to infrastructure. The lives of some 1.6 million people in Somalia could be disrupted, with the rainy season set to last till December. More now in this report. Mina Addo was displaced by flash floods twice this year from her home in the agricultural town in central Somalia. She now resides in an IDP camp for internally displaced persons, or IDPs outside Bledwayne. Life, she says, is not easy, and just maintaining her dignity in such a tough conditions is a challenge. I was living in an IDP camp in Beledwain when flood waters swept away our shelters. We relocated to higher ground here. As you can see, we don't have proper shelter, no food and even water as well as latrines. We call upon the Somali government and its partners to provide urgent assistance. The situation is no different for her neighbor. Hussein Ali says the weather is very changeable, with temperatures extremes, and there are constant struggles with public health and sanitation. 
We have been here for about 10 days with no water and latrines. It's very hot during the day and very cold and rainy during the night, so we request help from non-governmental organizations. Despite efforts by the Somali government, several towns are still underwater, and there seems no hope for the rains ending in the immediate town. However, the humanitarian mission continues, despite frustrating logistical problems. The National Disaster Management Agency, in coordination with UN agencies, has dispatched rescue boats to look, which is one of the most affected areas. We are also planning to provide food, medicine, as well as mosquito nets. But delivering the supplies via road transport is becoming a challenge because of the heavy rains. Somalia is not the only country in the region been affected by this global weather phenomenon known as El Nino. Kenya and Ethiopia have also reported deaths and displacements due to heavy rains and flooding. The UN says it will provide 25 million US dollars to jumpstart life-saving assistance for those affected. Somalia is considered one of the most vulnerable countries to El Nino and climate change. For example, just a few months ago, the country was crying out for rain as the drought brought huge environmental challenges and food security issues. Now, millions of acres of what was patched land is underwater, crippling regional economies, which rely so much on agriculture. Hamid Kahi, CGTN Mordishu, Somalia. Now, newspapers all over the world are full of reports of people of all ages suddenly dropping down dead for no apparent reason. Indeed, the total number of excess deaths in Europe and North America is higher now than it was during the COVID farrago. This is particularly the case among young people who are collapsing and dying from cardiac arrest in record numbers, as we can hear now from Channel 4 News. Me and Daddy are racing! She was a very vivacious girl. Um, but yeah, she was very sporty. She really enjoyed running. She ran nationally from a very young age um, and uh, loved traveling and anything that came her way. She was up for it, always up for it. Clarissa Nichols was studying languages at Cambridge University and had her whole life ahead of her. Living in France as part of her studies, she embarked on a hiking trip on the Maybank holiday this year. Nothing different all that day, lots of walking. They swam in the lake in a really sort of private area, a lovely little beach that they'd found. Um, and they then had a picnic lunch by the, by the lake and then they took this path up the hill, which was quite steep. And I know that there was a lot of huffing and puffing, but her friend says how Clarissa was right ahead and it was very difficult for her to keep up because Clarissa was always marching on ahead and nothing could really stop her. And all of a sudden, Clarissa put out her hands, I gather, and in front of her, as if to stop her from falling forwards, and said, oh no. And obviously had something that she must have felt, presumably in her heart, and she fell back into her friend's arms. By chance, an American medic was hiking nearby. The American came down and gave her CPR and worked on her for half an hour, but she's told us that even the first point of, of seeing Clarissa, she, she could tell there was nothing there. 
and I've asked the police who have spent a lot of time talking to us about it and giving us a lot of support what would have happened if that had happened right outside the hospital and nothing could have helped her even then because it's such a big explosion that happens in your in the heart but there was no sign of anything before this it's just such a shock also tell us when you started to piece together what had happened we did within a few weeks get a report back on her heart which told us that she had a heart condition which was another bold bowling over scenario for the family because first of all we have to get around the fact that she's not she's not with us anymore and then we have to realize that she's actually had a heart condition which none of us realized so what are you now in your grief in your grief and your family's grief what are you wanting to happen to help other people if there's anything i can do to save anyone else's life then i really want to fight for that and it's around the screening of young people and specifically sporty young people because if you look at the evidence it shows that this silent killer affect mainly those people who are actually quite fit which is a huge irony so screening but with a cardiologist looking at the results my vision and what i really want to fight hard for is that all grassroots sports organizations sports clubs make it mandatory for young people between the ages of 16 and 25 to be screened every three years. Well, this, this is our, the entrance to our laboratory where we actually handle all the hearts that come to us. Professor Mary Shepherd is a pathologist specialising in the kind of heart conditions that cause sudden cardiac death in the young. She examined Clarissa's heart after she died and discovered, unknown to her, she had a fatal condition called arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy. How long have we known about that particular abnormality? Only really on, on a large scale level since the 2000, since the beginning of this century. When I was a medical student, it was utterly unknown. We've seen figures that maybe there are 12 deaths of young people a week. How common do you think this kind of sudden cardiac death in the young is? I would say of young people under the age of 35, if I was to say how many die suddenly, I'd say 20 per week would be my estimate. So potentially almost twice as many as I currently are being so. estimated? Yes, that would be my estimate from talking to people and families throughout the country who say, well, the case was never referred to you or never referred for an expert cardiac opinion. come back from Cambridge where we had a most beautiful memorial service for her and her friends were unbelievable and putting together some really beautiful words about what she meant to them. Clarissa is a country walk, a truffle stand, the break of sun on a dusty floor. So I think for me the most, <laughs> the biggest thing for her and for me, in, my, in terms of my being happy about her and the, what, what really Clarissa was, but she was somebody who had the most enormous number of friends. It is a cruel irony that young athletes like Clarissa, determined to test their own physical prowess, are most vulnerable to a defect they never knew they carried within them. The one comfort for her family is they know she wouldn't have wanted to live life any differently. So many young people collapsing and dying. I wonder what is causing it. All answers on a postcard, please.
We're going to take a short break now for the headlines. When we come back, I'll be joined by Benjamin Rubenstein for a deep dive into all aspects of the crisis in the Middle East. We'll be right back. What a news day this is turning out to be. Wait, 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 wait till you hear this. Now, TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. Turkey as president has vowed to support the reconstruction and recovery of Gaza, but says the final bill for the rebuild will rest with Israel. Donald Trump's attorney has confirmed the former president will file for a mistrial in the civil fraud case against him. And New York is creating a Ministry of Truth, the state's Democratic governor announcing it's collecting data from surveillance efforts on social media. We wear the PPE and wade through the muck so you don't have to. Never miss our thought-provoking take on the latest news and current affairs. Take TNT Radio wherever you go. Ask Alexa or Google to play TNT Radio. Or download the TNT Radio app for free from the App Store or Google Play. Today's news talk. This is TNT Radio. And welcome back to Compass. Today the 14th of November. Cancer patients (coughs) cannot get their medicine and face a certain death. Premature babies have no oxygen. Israeli snipers are shooting nurses and patients through the windows of hospitals. The World Health Organization says 22 of the 36 hospital in Gaza are non-functional due to lack of fuel, damage, attacks and insecurity. The situation is absolutely appalling. I've seen video on social media of devastated streets with corpses lying around amidst the rubble. Joining me now to discuss the current situation and how the political map is changing as a result is journalist and activist Benjamin Rubenstein, who joins me from Central America. Welcome back to Compass, Benjamin. Thanks for having me again, Basil. First of all, uh, the situation on the ground in Gaza, particularly around the hospitals, uh, seems to get worse and worse. But Western audiences are still being shielded from that uh, to a very large extent. Um, At what point do you think are we going to reach, you know, that tipping point where, you know, news agencies and Congress and, you know, Houses of Parliament in Britain finally put their hands up and say, this is enough, because we're seeing sort of biblical slash World War II scenes of carnage and destruction that uh, are the worst in my lifetime. Yeah, well, you know, I think public opinion has shifted quite a bit. I just saw a poll that showed something like 80% of Democratic voters support a ceasefire and 56% of Republicans. And it's clear that the sort of overtone window has shifted in what mainstream media is and isn't permitted to say by the security state. That being said, the tone in Congress and in Parliament seems not to have shifted very much. And remember, these are the people who supported the million to two million deaths in Iraq and Afghanistan wars in Yemen and across the Middle East, these people have no soul, effectively. They have no empathy, and they're completely controlled by the Zionist lobby, APAC, J Street for the quote-unquote progressive Zionists. 
So while the, the world is uniting in support of Palestine, we're not seeing very much movement from governments. And that includes governments in the Middle East, like Saudi Arabia, who, who trades their, their oil in, in predominantly the dollar, which props up their economy and also props up the dollar. So there's sort of a, uh, incestuous relationship going on there. And these, people with financial interests within the empire and within Israel aren't going to move like they should. I just saw yesterday Egypt rejected an Iranian humanitarian aid delivery meant for Gaza, which Israel themselves, rather Egypt themselves, were supposed to distribute. And it was rejected at the behest of Israel. And of course, Gaza needs humanitarian aid more than anything else right now. Yes, we've got sort of parallel realities coexisting in the political sphere. Uh, one where politicians like the Spanish minister, Ione Bellara, and one Belgian minister have spoken up and said Israel is committing genocide. The president of the United States and two of his cabinet ministers are being sued for failing to prevent and aiding abetting genocide. This the uh, filing from the New York Civil Liberties Group, the Center for Constitutional Rights. So uh, we're seeing sort of tectonic plates shifting, really, with, uh, you know, on the one hand, the endless mantra about Israel's right to defend itself, seemingly regardless of what it does, how many children are killed, the total lack of proportionality um, on, on the one hand, uh, and then people who realize that what's going on are, are war crimes uh, and calling them out as such. So it's a unique situation, really. In the past, politicians have sort of been able to mollify the situation and make excuses which are bought by the general public more readily. But Caitlin Johnston pointed out in a post on X that um, public dissatisfaction with wars only ever goes up over time once people realize the horror and often the lies and malfeasance that took us to war. Uh, you know, the Iraq war enjoyed widespread, God knows why, but enjoyed a lot of support in the early days. That fell away, of course, when there were no weapons of mass destruction and a million people were killed and all the rest of it. Um, in this case, there is already tremendous public dissatisfaction with what's going on, and that's only likely to increase. And it means that uh, for many people, I mean, I would even say for the majority of the world's population, Israel is now and always will be, if it continues in its with its present constitutional arrangements, a rogue state, a pariah, and will be isolated from the rest of the international community. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And we do see the people rising up. You know, there are millions of people in the street. London just had its largest protest, I think, ever with estimates between 300,000 and a million people. D.C. had one of its uh, had an extremely large protest. There are stadiums in the Middle East filled with people chanting for Palestine. And in the past, yeah, they were able to sort of sweep this under the rug but the brutality of the current onslaught is worse than anything we have seen in living memory for most of us. Perhaps the first Nakba itself was equally as bad when 750,000 people were expelled from their land and massacres happened across Palestine. However, 
5,000 or more children in just a few weeks is something, you know, any human can get behind saying this is this is not okay. You know, we're seeing images daily of children just being massacred of families. And it's it's totally uh, intolerable to the average everyday person. And so people are upset. And and, you know, the, the Iraq war, the Afghanistan war, people have fatigue in the United States. When we pulled out of Afghanistan, it was a shameful moment in American history. And when we went into Ukraine, yeah, everyone was riled up because Russia invaded Ukraine. But now they're tired of it. And now everybody knows where Israel gets their weapons from. And they're tired of that as well. They don't want another war. And when you know, you have Secretary Blinken saying that, you know, there needs to be a Palestinian government in Gaza and, and Netanyahu going on TV and saying, oh, we're going to occupy and they're getting their signals crossed. You start to wonder who's really calling the shots here. And the problem yes. is, is that Netanyahu has been playing this game long enough where he knows what he can get away with and he knows no matter what he does the united states is not going to threaten to withdraw financial support not threaten to withdraw the delivery of more weapons so he can do whatever he wants regardless of the protests from the quote protests from government from the u.s government it's it's shameful and they know he's doing this and they know that he's effectively using them and manipulating them and stringing them along i think there was a private recording of trump basically saying he got played by bb netanyahu and he's been doing this for decades so i do believe that israel is becoming a rogue and a pariah state i mean they they go against u.n rulings and the world is turning against them the people of the world are turning against them and it's only going to be so long until some governments start to switch their position because the situation is becoming intolerable within their own countries you have people protesting outside of embassies mass people taking over the streets and so uh, you know if israel doesn't move towards an actual solution for the Palestinians and being open to an actual solution for the Palestinians, you know, they're, they're only doing more damage to themselves really. And I don't know if this is a two state solution. Some people say that has already failed with the Palestinian authority. I don't know if this is a one state secular solution or even a, 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 a one state sort of as Islam oriented solution, sort of like we see in Iran. That also is a possibility. There are numerous possibilities. It could even be an international sort of, uh, you know, government controlled by the UN or or mandated by the UN. Yes. The solution is up to the Palestinians who are fighting for their survival. Yes, uh, very interesting point you make that Blinken and Netanyahu don't seem to be speaking from the same hymn sheet at the moment, which is quite unusual, really. Um, Blinken has said he wants the Palestinian Authority, who nominally run the West Bank, to take over in Gaza. Um, in terms of long-term solutions the only ones coming out of tel aviv are ethnic cleansing uh, and that is what is happening de facto on the ground um of course we're in a sort of weird twilight world at the moment where uh, western politicians i think are still clinging to the hope that the displacement of people from northern gaza is only temporary because if it becomes permanent that is unequivocally another war crime in the shape of ethnic cleansing and no serious western politician who talks about human rights or anything else can possibly support that so that should be 
a red line. I mean, the genocide that's going on should be a red line, but you know, it isn't because um, the call for a ceasefire is still a minority, certainly in the US Congress and the Houses of Parliament. Somebody who is very much an exception is the Irish Member of Parliament, Claire Daly. And uh, she spoke yesterday about the hypocrisy of the West's reaction to what's happening in Palestine versus the Ukraine, as we can hear now. I think it's quite astounding when we look back and think that this time last year there were members of the European Parliament coming in screaming and roaring, demanding that the International Criminal Court would be involved to investigate Russian war crimes. The buildings and the streets of Europe were lit up with flags that we stand with Ukraine. It was almost as if there had never been a war in the world, that what was going on in Ukraine was so horrific they had to condemn it. They all had to drape themselves with this issue. Um, and what could we do and could we do more? And a year on and we're in the situation now in Gaza where we have genocide actually openly declared and carried out, where the numbers of civilians slaughtered and murdered in 30 days in Gaza exceeds the civilian death toll in Ukraine. And that is met with silence. This is something which has been noticed by millions of European citizens who are absolutely horrified, some of whom actually believed the propaganda that when Europe stood with Ukraine, they were standing for democracy and for peace and so on. Now they see that that mask has completely dropped and that has taken a lot away from a lot of people who believe that Europe was better. So I honestly think, I didn't believe that, by the way, I felt that their position on um, the Ukraine war was to engage in a NATO proxy war uh, for geopolitical interests against Russia. Um, that sadly has been proven to be the case. So, um, But for many people, this is quite shocking that they have sided with a genocidal ethnic cleansing apartheid state who proudly carry out um, massacres of innocent civilians, particularly children. And I honestly don't think that the European Union will recover in the minds of loads of its citizens, but critically, the nations of the world will not be lectured anymore by Europe about rule of law, democracy, human rights and standards. That day is gone now. Uh, it's just an awful tragedy that it's come at the cost of the massacres that are still going on in Gaza. That was the Irish member of the European Parliament, Claire Daly, and she's absolutely right, Benjamin. Uh, we're seeing, you know, huge, permanent, I think, changes in public perception of their political institutions, uh, which was already at a low ebb even before this, but people now are looking at the likes of Ursula von der Leyen in Europe and Rishi Sunak, who are still welcoming Israeli officials and delegates while this uh, mass slaughter is going on, and and they're saying this 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 ain't right. This, this is this is uh, off the charts. Yeah, you know, it's always sort of a breath of fresh air to hear her speak. You know, I, it's interesting that these governments will talk about genocide, right? They'll use the term genocide and they'll always, you know, use it in reference to Ukraine or even in Xinjiang and China. 
which was not a genocide and ukraine was not a genocide the policies can themselves can be questioned but they weren't genocides but they they will, will absolutely refuse to use the term genocide in relation to israel and gaza and the interesting thing is that you know they'll 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 go on about you know how how uh we have to have a humanitarian pause they're afraid to use the term ceasefire because they don't want to offend oh, their apac donors that's right now uh, interestingly enough i'm glad you brought that point up there are um you know people emerging on social media groups i think it's called the olive tree project or something who plan on publicizing the size of APAC donations and related Israel lobby donations to members of Congress uh, and therefore they cannot be expected to call for a ceasefire if they're being funded by Israel a lot of this was hidden from the American public in the past you know you had the Mearsheimer and Walt um famous document uh or getting on for 20 years ago now about the power and influence of the Israel lobby that was all dismissed as anti-semitism I mean six weeks ago if you'd brought up the subject of the uh, financial uh, domination of American politics by the Israel lobby and I, I don't think that's an exaggerated term at all um you were uh, accused of anti-semitism of course all the while people were talking nonsense about Russia interfering with American elections when you know very obviously um Israel was interfering in elections more than anybody else but you know that's starting to change and you know uh unfortunately the wider Zionist power and money configuration isn't going anywhere in the short term and they're doubling down um uh, you know Harvard in particular um the you know the Dean has come out and slammed uh, student protesters for calling for a ceasefire this endless conflation of wanting peace with somehow being pro-terrorist this sort of nonsense but just today I've seen a lengthy letter uh, published and signed by about 70 members of the Harvard faculty a great big long list which includes a lot of Jewish uh, members of Harvard faculty as well saying that there cannot be a Palestine exception to free speech which is something that the lobby have been sort of gradually working towards for decades you know you can say BDS what you like about any BDS is illegal BDS is illegal in multiple states boycott divestment and sanctions against Israel the support support for that movement and participation in that movement is literally illegal in multiple U.S. states so what does that say about the first amendment and I just like to say real quick Basil that this is uh, this goes actually deeper than money from APAC it's 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 on a, a more more profound level because we have to remember that Jeffrey Epstein is widely considered to have been a Mossad agent his entire operation is widely to have been considered is widely to be considered a Mossad operation so it's very likely that many of the people that we see with the most fervent support of the Zionist state the Zionist entity at this point all have blackmail on them they yeah, and I, I, th I think you're probably right we don't know that for certain but you know there's a very 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 murky subject there um but once again one thing that yeah go on 
Well, you know, all these people are accepting money from foreign governments. They're foreign agents, essentially, and they should be treated yes. as foreign agents. Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, the same is the case in the United Kingdom. 40% of the so-called shadow cabinet of Keir Starmer uh, have had funding from uh, prominent Israel lobby uh, supporters, you know. Um, I just want to play a, another clip now, a fascinating one, uh, the journalist Aaron Marte, who uh, found himself sitting on the train opposite Senator Chris Coons and uh, asked him why he wasn't calling for a ceasefire. So if we can hear that clip now, it's clip one. Senator, I'm sorry to put you on the spot, but why not call for a ceasefire in Gaza? I'm a journalist, my name's Aaron Mate. Why not call for a ceasefire in Gaza? You have 4,600 children killed. This is I know it's a quiet card. I apologize for abuse, but I understand, but children are dying. Children are dying, sir. More than 40, when I call for a cease, they're being killed with our weapons. U.S. weapons are killing kids in Gaza. Who are you? My name is Aaron Maté. I'm a journalist. Nice to meet you, Aaron. Likewise. Please stop talking to me. I'm sorry, sir. It's of dire importance. More than 11,000 civilians, as we're Who talking, being killed. I'm a journalist with for? for the gray zone. What's the gray zone? It's a it's a U.S. web-based uh, news website. Good for you. Thank you. And and right now, with, Aaron, with our support, kids stop. are being killed. I'm sorry. I, with our please weapons, stop. I'm asking you to explain why not call Aaron, for a ceasefire. You're bothering me and everyone else around me. Kids in Gaza are being massacred. Okay. I'm asking you Aaron, please explain why not call for Aaron, a ceasefire. Stop. Sir, could I please have some help here? Kids are being killed please with our weapons. Stop. I'm asking you to stop. Why not stop? This the, is why not, not call for stopping up for you to interview me. It, you're it, bothering everybody else it's around. A cri- it's a crisis How right now. How did you get this seat? I bought the seat. No. He's bothering me while He's I'm trying to do work. And our government is paying for weapons that are murdering children. Guys, I'm asking him why I call for a ceasefire. Aaron. Can you explain that? Please stop. Can I ask you to explain why I call for a You've ceasefire? You've already asked me five times. I'm not going to call for a ceasefire. I strongly support humanitarian causes. I've urged the Israeli government to target their campaign against Hamas. You need Do you think the stop. campaign is targeting against Hamas when Aaron, civilians are being massacred, Aaron, when babies in incubators are, are dying because the fuel is being cut off? I'm going to have you thrown off this train. Please stop doing this. I have to You've ask these questions. you ten times. I know, and I You're will getting keep... as professional, measured, and appropriate an answer out of me as you can. This is not professional journalism. Please get up and leave. I don't think it's humane to be massacring kids. That's the problem here. That's I, great. I realize I'm not I don't think it's humane to be massacring kids either. Okay, then and I, I think when Hamas it. massacred 1,400 Israeli civilians, uh-huh. the whole world should unite in opposition to terrorism. First of all, the number is 1,200. It wasn't entirely Are we civilians. Are going to over how many civilians well, were massacred by Hamas? It's, it's important to be precise. It's important, and, uh, it is important to be precise. But yes, civilians were massacred. I'm a get, senator. Does that give us this the right to This is a quiet keep? car. You're breaking the basic rules of how we operate on Amtrak. Okay, and the question Please is... stop. And I believe we're breaking international law okay. by supporting Thanks massacres of civilians. Yes. You've had a lot of my time. Please move on. Why not at least right. call for a ceasefire? Um, Chris Coons there, absolutely pathetic, complaining about Aaron Marte, who was speaking very quietly, breaking the rules on Amtrak while children are being massacred and mutilated. These people like to smooth around Washington in their limousines and their suits, and they don't like being confronted with reality, do they, Ben? Not at all. And Aaron did a fantastic job. I think 
he did handle that quite professionally. And when he said you're breaking the basic rules of Amtrak, well, as Aaron said, what about the basic rules of international law? What about the basic rules yeah. of human decency? And it's as I said, he refuses to call for a ceasefire. He wants a humanitarian pause, a few hours here and there, so people can, you know, go down their humanitarian corridor and be, you know, forcefully expelled from their land and oftentimes shot at by the IDF. That's what he's really calling for. He's, it's it, he knows that there's not going to be an effective human humanitarian pause and he knows that a humanitarian pause is effectively another term for forceful expulsion of palestinians from gaza it's total cowardice Uh, total cowardice i mean he repeated the 1400 figure that's uh, been debunked even the israelis admit it was 1200 the vast majority of them soldiers and policemen uh so many many of them killed by the idf themselves yes yes uh, with their helicopter is, fire and on the um and their shelling the, of houses and kibbutzes absolutely i mean this is this is stuff we know now yes um uh, and of course uh, you know so many other aspects of the of the conflict that people like chris coons never address 186 palestinians have been killed in the west bank since october the 7th where there is no hamas but you don't find people like him ever sort of pushing back against that, saying that must stop, that the settler violence must stop. You either get total silence or you get this just sort of mantra-like repetition of Israeli talking points. It's absolutely sickening. And unfortunately, bumping into people on trains like that is one of the very few opportunities that genuine journalists ever get to put questions to people like Chris Coons. If they go on CBS or NBC, they just get softball interviews and come out with the usual garbage. Yeah, absolutely. I remember back in 2020, uh, 2021, I ran in, I just happened to run into Ted Cruz at the airport. He sat across from me and I questioned him on sanctions. That is journalism. To say that this isn't professional journalism is, it really says more about his understanding of the First Amendment than it does about Aaron Mate's level of professionalism. Yes, exactly. I just want to bring us up to date as well with some of the total garbage coming out of Israeli government accounts that they tweeted and then deleted. There was a video of a fake nurse claiming that Hamas had taken over the Al-Shifa hospital. She turns out to be an Israeli actress. I don't know if you see that one. She's very clearly identified as an actress, wasn't in the Al-Shifa hospital at all. Everything she was saying was rubbish. There was a false claim that journalists had embedded themselves with Hamas on October the 7th. A video with fake captions claiming a crying elderly Gaza woman blaming Hamas for the siege. Graphic uh, assertions of Israeli ownership of all the occupied territories, including Syria's Golan Heights. So that map that uh, Netanyahu produced at the UN, that's been uh, reproduced uh, as well, showing basically the complete obliteration of Palestine. the false claim that Israel is facilitating the supply of human aid to Gazan civilians, the assertion that hospitals and ambulances constitute legitimate military targets. A final word from you, Ben. It seems like every other or every time we see a statement from the IDF, it's a lie. Just yesterday, they put out a very shoddy edited...